everyone. Welcome to another Crowdlinker Fireside Chat. I'm Aram Milkumov, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing product innovation leaders who are working on big industry disruptive problems from within the large organizations. My guests on the show have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share about building quality digital products, staying agile, and fostering an innovation culture within their organization. This is season two, episode number four, and I'm here today with Pansy Lee to chat about adapting to COVID, running experiments, and becoming a product leader without a traditional background. Uh, Pansy is currently a product leader at ClearCo, formerly named ClearBank, where she's responsible for building new products and services to help founders succeed. Before ClearCo, Pansy was the director of product and design at MLSE, as well as holding product leadership roles at companies like Intuit and RL Solutions. Pansy has also been a mentor for Side by Side and has been a judge, speaker, and panelist at multiple tech events. So I'm super excited to have you on our show today, Pansy. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, first question I have is, you know, maybe you could tell some of the audience members who are going to be listening about a little bit about your role that you're currently doing at, at ClearCo and mm -hmm. uh, what you're working on and where, where you're based with the whole a remote situation. Yeah. Um, so I actually started at ClearCo March 9th. Um, so it was literally three days before everything shut down. Um, so I got to meet everyone for a couple of days, um, got to put my first trinket on my desk and then everyone's like, okay, we're going to work from home for a couple of weeks. And then we never went back. Um, but yeah, I'm based out of Toronto. Um, and actually since, uh, being at ClearCo, I've been on a couple of teams. Um, so I actually started on the experimental pod, which was a group that was put together to really like look for new customer problems and test new ideas. Um, you know, we launched a couple things, we piloted a bunch of things. Um, and then I started the banking team, which um, worked on launching a deposit account for founders. Um, and most recently in January, I moved over to the capital team to lead um, our flagship product. So um, I'm currently working on, uh, you know, launching new capital products with the team and continuing to iterate and improve on our current products. Nice. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of shifting around in the, in the last year, so it must have yeah. been really exciting. Yeah, um, somebody moves really quick. No, yeah, I've been following uh, Andrew and, and the team for some time, and it's just amazing the velocity you, you the team pushes things out at. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, with, with, uh, with you joining ClearCo and then everything uh, happening with the pandemic, yeah. it must have been like a kind of like a big overnight shift for you. You started a new company and then, you know, everybody's remote and now it's been like over a year. Yeah. What, what, what adjustments did you have to make um, during that transition? Uh, any learnings you could share? Uh, yeah. So I, I wasn't on the capital team when COVID hit, um, but I can definitely speak to like what we did as a company. Um, so when, when the pandemic hit, you know, there were two things that were really top of mind for us. Um, the first was we have all of this data. How do we use our data to make smarter decisions? Um, and that became even more important during this time because everything was changing so quickly. Um, but the second thing that was really, really top of mind for us was really like, how do our, how do we help our customers weather and survive this storm? Um, you know, our, our capital is really about being founder friendly. Um, and our revenue share model is already pretty founder friendly. Like we only 
receive repayments when the customer makes a sale. So if they don't make any sales, you know, we don't get any repayments. So, um, but I think even with COVID, there was still so much uncertainty um, for, for our founders. And so we took it a step further. We actually reached out to our customers proactively um, to see how we, we could help. So um, that was a big um, shift for the, for the business. Um, and then, of course, you know, we went remote and, and having to figure out how to take this culture that they had built that was um, <clears throat> really built on in-person and, um, and, and how do we scale that to, to the remote world. So, Interesting. And as a product leader kind of um, adapting to that shift, yeah. Dick, are you are you finding uh, success working from home? Do you think eventually things will, when things you know go back to normal, everybody's vaccinated and um, <laughs> you know uh, normal life maybe will ensue again? Uh, yeah. Do you think as a product manager the the role dynamics have changed a bit, or like how did you see it affected you um, during this time? Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, being a product person in a remote world because um, no one really reports to the product manager, right? Like you have to do everything through influencing and inspiring and organizing people. And, you know, to build those kinds of relationships is definitely easier in person. Um, and it's, it was especially hard for me because I'm someone who loves a good whiteboard session. Um, but I, I don't know if it's like, it's not to say that product roles aren't suitable for home, uh, you know, for work from home. Um, and we, I think one thing that's really interesting to see when everyone does get vaccinated is if everything will go back to normal. Um, and I'm, I don't know if it will, because, you know, we saw this massive trend during the pandemic that like all these companies were closing their offices, which allowed them to expand their hiring pools beyond their own cities. So I think even if we go back to the office, I don't think it's going to be uncommon to have a lot of remote coworkers uh, because of that hiring trend. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the, the one thing I definitely adapted um, when we moved to work from home was being way more intentional about how um, to build those relationships because you don't get those like serendipitous um, meetups at the water cooler when you're getting a snack. Um, and so um, I actually started booking like random coffee chats with people on my team mm -hmm. just so you could start getting to know people beyond like your daily stand-up. So. No, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must have been... It must have been a, a culture change, you know, internally in that company to, to adopt her. So, yeah, Definitely. thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, talking a bit more about uh, ClearCo and more about kind of the, the mindset culturally, I think, business-wise you have there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very much regarded as one of the most innovative companies right now in Canada. Um, I think the first product that was introduced was called the Growth Capital Fund mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And now there's like multiple product lines and different... Um, like to cater to different types of users yeah. uh, and a lot of that success can definitely be attributed to that whole experimentation mindset which i think is infused in in the culture can you tell us a little bit more about what that culture is like yeah so the experimentation culture definitely runs really deep at clearco um 
I think I think it's because many or most of us are founders. Um, and so as founders, we just have this like natural inclination to want to find new customer problems to solve. And, and mm. naturally, we have lots and lots of ideas. Uh, but I think also as founders, we know that not every idea is going to be a home run. So um, one of our core values is speed. Um, and we believe, you know, it's better to test something scrappy today and find out that it's not going to work today so that we can iterate on it um, rather than build something out for a month only to find out a month later, you know, after you've wasted all these resources and time um, that it's not going to work. Right. So um, definitely experimentation runs really deep at the company. And how do you decide um, your ideas that you're going to work on? Because like you said, there's lots of ideas. Everybody has their own take on whatever. And then you also are listening to customers. Yeah. And they're maybe giving some feedback. Um, how, do you, how do you know which ones to prioritize on? Yeah. I mean, there's no perfect way of, of assessing, you know, which ideas to test first. Um, you know, we do like rough impact assessments. Is this going to be a game changer or is this incremental? Um, you know, it always starts with a customer problem. We'll do a bit of like market analysis. Um, and then, and then again, like, because we find really scrappy ways to test these things, um, you can test a lot of different ideas and, and get answers pretty quickly. So, yeah. And, and so how do you assess like the high, high impact ones? Is it, do you score it? Do you have a committee that like votes on which one to do? Um, yeah, I, I like a good scoring method. Um, so like I'm a fan of the weighted score. Sometimes we do like a rice score. Um, but you know, it's also like what's happening in the industry, what's happening, uh, what is the market size? Like what is the total addressable market? You know, we think about a lot of those things. Um, mm -hmm. but we also try not to like overanalyze it. Um, the fastest way to get feedback is like to put it in front of a customer and see if it's something that they would even want. So, um, yeah. Okay. And so once, what happens once an idea is selected to move forward? What um, do you do? So, I mean, there's lots of ways to test ideas and every idea is full of assumptions. So, I mean, the tests we run really depends on the assumption you're trying to answer. So. Uh, sometimes the, the way to get an answer is to throw up a landing page with a wait list and see if people are, um, you know, how, how fast or, or how many people are trying to sign up for your, your wait list. Um, and an interesting thing that I recently discovered is that sometimes the best research is to just try and pitch it on a sales cold call. Um, because people aren't afraid to give salespeople a piece of their mind. You know, we've all been there. A sales rep calls you up. You literally, they literally have like 15 seconds to pique your interest before you say no thanks and hang up, right? Um, and I think that's one of the advantages of doing that type of um, test versus, you know, these like research sessions where the participants often compensated. They know the researchers just trying to get them to um, give feedback so they can make the product better. They're not asking you to buy anything. Um, and so, yeah, at the end of the day, what people say isn't always what people do. Um, and I find these like cold call sales calls are like really telling. Hmm. 
So, yeah. so you're saying that there might be bias in in the research when uh, it's it's paid, right? Or some survey or some sort of interview that is compensated for? Um, I mean, I think really, really good researchers have ways to uh, reduce bias. But mm. when you do things like value prop testing, it's really hard to do value prop, value prop testing in a very controlled environment. Um, so, you know, with value prop testing, the test almost has to feel as real as, as um, reasonably possible. Um, like one of my favorite examples is Zappos. I don't know if you've heard their founder story, right? They, at the time, like buying shoes online was, was unheard of. Um, and so what they could have easily done was like a more of a traditional route where they go out, buy all of the shoes in all of the sizes, put it up on a website and see if people will buy it. But instead, you know, they went out to a store, took pictures of shoes, put them up on a website and if someone bought it, they would run out and buy the shoe and then ship it, right? Like that's that's um, that's like a, a very clear example of seeing if people would actually um, buy something off you um, that mm -hmm. you know is, is really new and you don't know if that's like a trained behavior yet. So, got it, got it. That's that's a good example. Yeah, they had a. Uh, I'm seeing actually more and more of those companies uh, come up now where they do something similar to that, which I, I think is like a very hustle first type of mentality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fake it till you make it in many ways. Yeah. Um, on, on another call that we had, you mentioned that, you know, large companies, there is a, a lot of fear around experimentation. Mm. Um, you know, we work with a few enterprises and there's always that concern about you know, what if, what if the risk is too high? What if, what if it comes out bad? And like, you know, they're sometimes always just get too scared to even just to try something new. Yeah. What is it that they see or that you see that they don't? Um, <clears throat> I think, I think a lot of companies believe that success comes from finding a problem, having a great brainstorm, and then, doing really great planning uh, and then starting to build it out and, and sell it. Like it's very waterfall, right? Um, I think the other thing that, so I think there's two things that hold people back. One is they see taking that two weeks to test an idea as lost time and they see it as a delay in delivery. Um, but when you really think about it, like the number one reason why startups and products fail is because no one actually wanted that product. So I think um, that's like a mind shift uh, that needs to happen is like those two weeks can save you lots of money and lots of time. Um, and, and yeah, like um, the second thing I would say that holds people back is like a, a fear of reputation loss. Um, maybe it's because they think that talking about something that they haven't built yet uh, feels dishonest. Um, but to me, it really comes down to intention, right? Like, are you collecting their information for a dishonest reason? Like, are you asking for their email so you can turn around and sell their email? Or are you asking because you actually want to build this thing um, that you're asking them to sign up for? So I think with reputation, there's ways around it. Um, and I think if your intentions of collecting their information is, is honorable, then I don't think there should be anything to worry about. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I'd love to kind of 
dig deeper into that one a bit more. What what best practices can you share about presenting the right intentions uh, to demonstrate it so that you don't come off uh, as it coming back to you essentially? Yeah. So one thing that I've seen um, in really good experiments is when you do so. An experiment is you're trying to get them to do an action that simulates real life, um, but you don't actually have a product to deliver yet, right? So mm-hmm. when you get to that end step where you can't actually give them the product at the very end, um, be very honest that, you know, oh, you caught us right before we're ready, uh, but we've got your email. We'll definitely let you know when we're, you know, when we actually launch. So it's not like, you get all the way to collecting their credit card information, you check out and, um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, don't deliver, um, you know, stop it before it gets to that point, get to the point where you have enough confidence that um, this is something that they want. And then be, be honest that like you've caught us before we're ready. So um, I think those are one of the, those are like really good experiments. Just being a forthcoming and transparent into Mm-hmm. where the product really is and yeah, keeping everybody posted. Okay. That's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think we're going to, I'm going to get to this. Uh, but I, I was just thinking about something, uh, um, your, your knowledge in, uh, product management, I think didn't come through like traditional up like learning or mm-hmm. I wanted to ask what, what resources did you use or which ones do you suggest for product leaders to, to look at, uh, to become better at experimentation? Ooh, um, I think that everyone loves like the Lean Startup book. You know, there's lots of great examples there. Um, but yeah, experiments come in all forms. And I actually really struggled to find like a, a comprehensive resource of, of experiments when I uh, first started experimentation. Um, so I Googled a lot, um, just try to find uh, examples of experiments. I came across a lot of like founder stories like Dropbox and Zappos and Groupon. Um, but yeah, there's, there isn't a, like a, I wish there was like an experiments Bible. Um, but one of the things I ended up doing was I created a deck uh, with like some of my, uh, like some of the top 10 experiments that I've seen and common ones that I've seen um, and just tried to uh, you know, do presentations around it to help other people um, learn how to do experimentation. Uh, can, can can I ask? Can you can you tell us what those ten types of experiments are? Just high level. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so some of them are things like the, I think the landing page test is probably the most popular one. You have like a, a wait list for a beta product. Um, you've got some like you know smoke and mirror type screenshots of like what it might look like in the future, um, and and really like honing that value prop and is this something that resonates with customers? Um, that's a very popular one. Um, there's always the, the good AB test. Netflix does this a lot where they'll show you different graphics on, um, for the same movie, just to see like which graphics gets the most people to click in the next show. Um, the, the Zappos example that I shared is, uh, is an example of, um, a technique called, uh, wizard of Oz. So everything on the front end looks real, but at the back end, you're just like pulling all these levers behind a curtain and pretending like it's real um, and it's fully automated. Um, 
so yeah those are those are some examples uh, I, I love it if you're open to it uh when when we post uh, this this recording if we could put in your 10 types of experiments into yeah into yeah, the share. i think it'll be really valuable for everybody yeah i would love to share it awesome awesome um i want to ask what what is the difference or maybe there's no difference between a simple experimentation and experimentation at scale like what processes do you need to have in place before you start scaling um i think there there's different types of experiments right like there's there's optimization experiments so like those like small tweaks that you make here and there um your a b testing to optimize the performance of your existing products and that definitely requires a lot more infrastructure um, to scale that type of experimentation. You need a lot of traffic. You need to be able to split traffic um, and build out separate experiences, um, similar to the, the Netflix example that I shared. Mm -hmm. um, but I think value prop testing is a lot, I think it's a lot easier. Um, it's where you're like testing new ideas that you want to see if customers even want. And there's just like a whole slew of scrappy, low cost, easy to spin up um, experiment um, tools. Uh, things like Squarespace and Unbounce will help, you know, help with uh, launching landing pages, um, you know, setting up online ads to drive traffic to those pages. Uh, you know, if you need a phone number, there's like virtual phone number services. So there's, I think there's lots of ways to um, do simple experimentation um, and also, you know, it's, uh, experimentation at scale obviously just takes a lot more infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And um, I, about landing pages, I'm always curious because everybody I speak to gives me different answers, but okay. say you throw up a landing page and you're testing out a product and you have a value proposition, mm. depending on your sample size, statistically or percentage wise, what is like a pass or fail? of how many people sign up to a wait list that you're like, okay, this is good enough to move forward. And like, is that objective enough as well? I'm That's curious. a good question. Um, so at, at Intuit, we had like a, like a team that like actually measured statistical significance. So I don't know all the math behind it. Um, but some of the tools like Unbounce actually have a, uh, what they call like a confidence score, um, which I love as, as a non-statistical, you know, person, um, I don't know how to, you know, calculate whether or not this is statistically significant. So some, some tools, like some tools like Unbounce will have um, tools built in to, to share, like, okay, is this significant or not? So. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, I, I believe uh, you have both experience in B2B and B2C, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. So with that, uh, you know, dual mind, <laughs> when it comes to like understanding the, the business side in those two um, two approaches, uh, what what would you say is the the difference in how you approach experimentation between B2B and B2C? Yeah, um, I would. I say I think the main difference I found in experimenting in B2C versus B2B, uh, it really depends on how the customers typically interact with you. So there's definitely a lot of overlap in the tactics like ads, landing pages, Wizard of Oz. Um, 
And that's especially true for B2C customers, since most of them interact with you and buy things from you through a website. Mm -hmm. But I think one advantage and possible um, difference of B2B companies is that you often have a sales team. And I think I, I mentioned this earlier, like the quickest way to find out if someone wants your product or not is try and sell it to them. And when you're on the phone, you get that instant feedback and you also have the opportunity to dig into like why and ask um, for digging questions. So I think that's like one of the benefits of having, um, uh, doing experimentation in a B2B uh, company, so. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to ask a bit more about how um, the product teams ship, uh, ship products at, at, at ClearCo, because I know you're growing, scaling quickly. There's a lot of different initiatives happening in multiple different fronts. Uh, I, you know, I'm curious, how do you work on um, continuously shipping quality products, you know, improving them uh, for your customers across differentiated product offerings? Um, maybe it's like, the, you know, what does like a team look like? How do they work in, in the in the pods? Oh, I see. So that there isn't like um, two different teams maybe overlapping or working on something similar together. Got it, got it. Yeah, we're definitely a very fast growing company. Um, and, but I, I don't think we're quite so big yet that like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Um, but there's definitely, um, we, we have a, a pod structure that has like a GM, a product person, um, you know, engineering manager, developers, designers. So we almost run like separately, but you know, we have Monday kickoffs every week where we recap every team's initiatives. Um, and we, they, I think the company's done a really great job in, in carving out swim lanes for each of us that are big enough that we have room to stretch without bumping into each other too much. Mm -hmm. um, but also the team, like the product team meets weekly to talk about how everything we're working on is um, doing, but also to help with identifying like overlaps and dependencies. Okay. Yeah. And um, have you uh, come across any situation recently where um, you guys shipped something that wasn't successful and like any learnings you could share from that? Yeah. Um, we piloted a card product um, mm -hmm. and it was going well, but I think we wanted to re-examine how it would fit into our product suite. We had launched it pretty early on. Um, and, and since then we had launched, you know, three or four or five new products. And we, we had to rethink how this would fit in our um, ecosystem of products. So we, we paused it and we're hoping to kind of reimagine it and relaunch it. Um, so that's maybe one where, you know, it was like a, an idea, a glimmer in our eye. We tested it out. We tried it out. Um, it, you know, was the right product at the right time for our customers, um, given our current product suite. But now that we've grown our product suite so much, we kind of need to reimagine that one. So, mm -hmm. With that idea or like other ideas that, um, that your team comes up with, um, mm -hmm. and you mentioned that a lot of your team members are like, potential like ex ex founders, but they yeah. have that kind of mindset, right? Yeah. Um, 
the question I have is how, what questions do you ask yourselves or each other um, to create a habit in your workflow around that concept of like, are we doing the right thing? Yeah, I think, I think we're very, um, we're good at being skeptical of our strong convictions that our ideas are brilliant and fail proof. Um, and we're pretty diligent about, you know, finding our assumptions and um, our automatic default when we have like a, an idea is, okay, great, great, great. Let's test it. Let's test it. So it, it's not, it hasn't been like an uphill battle or anything like that. I think we, it's just like so ingrained in our culture that when we have a, a good idea um, that we want to see if it's, you know, sticky, um, the automatic response is like to, to try and test it. So. Okay. And um, what uh, what's like your what does success mean to you when when, when you ship a product? Mm, do customers love it? Um, does it solve a customer problem? Do they tell their friends about it? Um, yeah, I think like every other product, that's kind of how we define success. Okay. Can I always love asking this question because like it's always a very different answer, uh, you know, in different people's lens, which is um, how do you measure ROI uh, on, on products, especially mm -hmm. longer term products that you might not see results on? Like, how do you, how do you get comfortable around that kind of concept that you, at the end of the day, maybe have to report to somebody um, on some sort of P&L and um, you're, you know, reviewed based on that return on investment that, that your team delivered. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a hard one. I mean, I think everyone, any company that's not a, like a nonprofit uh, always measures revenue, um, you know, retention. Like these are like very common ones. Um, I think word of mouth is like, measuring word of mouth or uh, referrals is a really strong indicator of whether or not your product um, is delivering value to customers. And, you know, there, you know, there's always the NPS score. Um, we ask that question a lot after certain um, experiences in our product. Um, what else? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think those would be most of them. No, oh, it's interesting. That NPS one comes up uh, a, a few times. Mm -hmm. um, in in Clearco's case, it's really like if another founder refers another founder to the platform, would that be a word of mouth, uh, yeah. a trigger? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, it's very interesting. Uh, I'm always curious about these things because I'm myself. I'm trying to learn. Okay, how do we at, a, at a, as a product studio figure out what is measurable from an ROI standpoint for our clients, okay. right? After they spend time and money building something. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. A um, couple last questions, Pansy. Um, I wanted to go a bit deeper into uh, your background. Um, so from my, from my understanding, I think you mentioned this when we had a chance to connect last, that you didn't take a traditional path into product management. Mm. You were originally, I think, in marketing and then in design before becoming a PM. Yeah. Um, and I've actually been seeing a lot of success in this, uh, you know, transition of like, you know, uh, 
designer or marketer, you know, going into this type of role. Mm. Um, how do you think, you know, I want to know from your pers perspective and your past experience, how does it influence your perspective as a product leader? Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I actually feel like product people come from all kinds of backgrounds. Like there's no such thing as a degree in product management. Right. So, um, I think the most interesting background that I've seen come through uh, was he was like a physicist um, turned product <laughs> manager. That was cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I moved into product um, because as a marketer, I was always handed the product after the fact, right? Like I had to articulate the, the value prop for it after it was built. Um, and I, want, I went into product because I wanted to be... Um, I wanted to have more influence and impact on what problems we solved and how we solve them versus just getting it and then having to, to uh, uh, you know, wrap it up in a website and, and show it to customers. So I think that my marketing experience has really helped me in my product role in that I am always, always, always thinking about what customer problem am I solving and what value am I providing to that customer. Um, and I think my design experience actually helped me build this like really strong sense of empathy for our customers. And it gave me the tools to, um, learn how to dig and uncover those customer pains. So yeah, I wouldn't trade my marketing and design experience for the world. So. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think having that, uh, background actually as a prior designer that you learn to appreciate? How difficult sometimes product design can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Any any specific examples come to mind? Um, I think it, it's it's actually in working with developers that you learn the the limitations of your your designs, right? Like you're asking right. for for these things, but. Um, the untangling that would have to happen on the back end to enable some of these user experiences is, is like a, it's something that you don't think about um, always as a, as a new designer. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always, a, it's always hard as, as a designer, not seeing your design come to life exactly the way you envision it. Yeah. So having that appreciation, right. Of like, okay, it might not be doable or feasible yeah. the way you've designed it and having to compromise. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's always, it's always a battle. Um, cool. Uh, Pansy, that was great. Uh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate uh, being on our show and answering all these questions. I'm sure our audience members are going to really appreciate you having shared this uh, expertise with us today. Thanks. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, for everybody listening, uh, tune in next time to hear more product innovation professionals come on our show and share their insights. So uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again, Pansy. Thank you.